Are you waiting on the Lord? He says, you'll love your delight through the storm, through the night, through the difficulties of life. Are you taking courage in Christ? Aren't you glad you're here to sing that song? Did you need it? I needed that one today. Thank you. We need to sing praises together. It's such an encouragement, such a joy. Open your Bibles to Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8. We're going to start in Proverbs 8, and then we're going to go all over the Bible. Some of those scriptures are going to be on the screen. Some of them we're going to try to turn to. Um, and uh, we're going to dig in this morning. Uh, page 677, if you're using a Bible provided, 677. Uh, and, and if you can't find every place, just write down the scripture, uh, look them up later, and uh, as we go to the Word. This is Biblical Sexuality Sunday, and for us, I think this is our third year doing Biblical Sexuality Sunday in January. For some of you, this might be the first time you've heard of that. I'll give a little background. It was in 2021, actually 12-7-21, that, the, that Canada passed what's called Bill C-4, and what this bill did in Canada was to allow for the criminal prosecution of Christians who would speak biblical truth into the lives of those in bondage to sexual sins like homosexuality and transgenderism. And the wording of the law means that even a mother or father who offers their children freedom from sexual sin through repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ could be threatened with five years in jail. So to get up and preach a sermon in Canada where you talk about the sin of, of sexual sin especially of homosexuality, the sin of transgenderism, and that's a made-up term, but I think you know what we're talking about, that could lead to the imprisonment of the pastor or the church of members or people that are participating in that. And if you were to make those same statements and to teach your children at home, you could end up in jail in the great nation of Canada. Unfortunately, what begins in Canada many times travels southward because the progressives are just a few years ahead there uh, than they are here. And so the faithful evangelical churches of Canada called on every church in Canada to have a biblical sexuality Sunday to make sure they were still proclaiming loudly from the pulpit the truth. And they encouraged uh, churches around the world to do that, and we've decided uh, to participate in that every January. And that's because our nation, though, has, though not having gone so far just yet, and there are laws uh, being pushed in the state of Michigan, hate crime laws, whereby some of these same speech crimes of speaking the truth to people who battle with sin and have given themselves over to sin can also, will also, if it happens. Now, it has gotten stuck in committee and the House of Representatives has not been passed. And so they're having problems, praise God for that. But our, our own state, whether it happens in our nation or not right away, our state is, is in line with that. But most of you, <laughs> how could you not be aware that in 2016, the Obergefell decision, whereby we now have what is called same-sex, I can't say the word because it doesn't apply, mirage, as Doug Wilson would say, same-sex mirage in our land, um, that's 2016. 2022, in our nation, the Disrespect for Marriage Act, if you, that's not a, a misspeaking, it, they, they call it the Respect for Marriage Act, but it's the Disrespect for Marriage Act. So now we have... Um, Homosexual mirage is, is legal in all 50 states, but also with the Disrespect for Marriage Act, they made it so that you must recognize any marriage between two individuals. See how broad that is? Two marriage between, any marriage between two individuals. So it's not just, uh, so it just goes above and beyond, um, and we go there. So we are in a culture war. Uh, it is so much bigger than a culture war, but it is not any less than that. 
You'll find many evangelical Christians, maybe even many faithful Christians, who want to knock the idea of a culture war. And there's some reason for doing that, I believe. But it, it, it is that. We are in a war for our culture. It's a war for public morality, national morality, a war for right and wrong. It's a war over the dictionary. It's a war over education. It's a war for the family. It's a war over the body. And in the end, fundamentally, it is a religious war. If we don't recognize that, if only one side is fighting in a war and the other side says there is no war, who do you think is going to win that war? So we as the church have to wake up to the fact of what's going on around us. And since it is a religious war, this is in the purview of the church. So people say, if you preach on these issues, you talk about all these issues. Now, now we, we talk about them all the time in light of going through the books of the Bible, but there are times when we focus on them. There are some who think that, 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 that we're doing something wrong, but this is religious at its core, at its fundamental uh, fact. And so the best place to talk about these things is in the church. And I believe as a church, we are duty-bound to address them. And I take my marching orders from Martin Luther, though I don't agree with him on everything. He said this, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest expression every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be, may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefields besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. That's the evangelical church in America. We will preach faithfully on everything besides that which is most important at that moment. And what happens is because the culture, the, the culture of death, as we're going to talk about, continues to make progress, so-called progress in our nation, the room for what we can faithfully preach without running into trouble keeps shrinking. And at every point of the battle, faithful evangelicals who do not want to get into the conflict because one of our favorite lines is, this a battle? Is this a hill to die on? Is this a hill to die on? Well, I just want to know what's your last hill that you will die on because you will continue to give ground to the enemy and finally you will run out of room because they will take everything. That's the place we find ourselves in. And we cannot be fooled by the fact that if we think we can just bend on this one point or stay quiet or stay in our churches or stay in our homes, that they will be satisfied with progress. They will not be satisfied with what they call progress until they have it all and they destroy every vestige of faithful Christianity in our nation because it's a religious war. Now, you think I'm fooling or you think I'm just making this up. Um, just remember, back in the good old days when homosexuals just wanted to have civil unions where they could have the same rights as uh, homo uh, heterosexual unions where they could have uh, tax breaks and, and the right ways to do property. And all that. Remember those good old days? All, if we could just give them that, they would be satisfied. Okay, you have all lived long enough, including most of your children have lived long enough, to see the lies that they perpetrate because they just say, keep giving us the next thing. And then once they get that, where do they immediately do? They fight for the next thing. It will not end until they have it all. And so we must say, uh, no further. And we say that this morning in what we're going to preach about. So before we dig into the scripture, let's pray together. Father, it is only by your grace that we can understand not only the truth of your word, but its implications into every area of our life and our culture, our nation, our families, our church. So please guide and direct us. Please work in us. Please use me to give the truth faithfully. And may we be willing to face whatever consequences come with joy, with courage, to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 8, 32 through 36 is kind of the key passage because it has the key thought of what I'm going to be using as the fundamental text this morning. So it says, starting in verse 32, follow along. 
And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. This is God's word. This isn't all of God's word that we're going to read today. We're going to read a lot of God's word today and try to make sense of it. May God bless us as we do so. The theme this morning is sexual immorality is a fundamental characteristic in a culture that hates God and loves death. Right at the end of this passage, all who hate me love death. Therefore, all who love death, by default, hate God. And if you hate God, by default, you will love death. This is an inseparable truth. This is God's truth. This is the way it is, whether we agree or not, whether we think so or not. God has declared it. Now, what does it mean to live in a culture of death? What is a culture of death? And why do I believe that we are, as a culture and as a nation, and those are somewhat different but hard to separate, that we are in the last throes, even the death throes of our culture? Well, we'll find out why I believe so as we look through the Scripture. As we get into this, the first thing we want to look at is to answer the question, what is a culture of death? Have you ever heard of the phrase culture of death? I have to give James White a shout out for coining that phrase. He gets it from the scripture, and so we get it from Proverbs 8, but at pointing me to that. If you look in Proverbs 8, starting in uh, verse 32, and now, O sons, listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. Who's me? Who's me in this passage? Well, me goes back to 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? So don't misunderstand it. We're not talking about the Lord at the end of verse 36. We're talking about wisdom. Wisdom. Now, whose wisdom? Obviously, it is the Lord's wisdom. But the fact is here that those who hate wisdom, uh, hate the wisdom of God, are the culture of death. So the first point there, point A, is a culture that hates the wisdom of God. All those who hate God's wisdom love death. All those who hate me. And so when you hate the wisdom of God, you hate death. That's that's the default position. Notice also in this same passage in verse 35, whoever finds me, whoever finds God's wisdom finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Notice back in verse 34, blessed is the one who listens to me. Blessed is the one who listens to God's wisdom. So if you want life, if you want blessing, what will you do? You will love the wisdom of God. You will love what God says. You will love him and his wisdom. Turn to Deuteronomy 30. Like I said, we're going to be moving, and Lord willing, moving in a timely manner. (laughs) Yes, you can all joke at that, laugh at that. Um, Pray for me in that. Deuteronomy 30. So the first thing we see about a culture of death is a culture of death hates God's wisdom. The second thing I want to see from the culture of death is in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 20. And it goes right along with the first point. A culture of death is a culture that rejects the law of God. That rejects the law of God. Starting in Deuteronomy 30. I have the wrong passage, don't I? I'm in numbers, that's why I can't find the right thing. I'm like, what in the world? Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, 
If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. What brings life? What brings blessing? Obedience to the command of God. So notice, life and death is found in the rejection or the acceptance or the love of God's wisdom. But life and death is also found in the rejection of the law of God. You can hate the wisdom of God. That's the culture of death. You can also reject the law of God. That's the culture of death. Because life and obedience comes with obedience to God's commandments. Verse 17, notice the but. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you, what? Life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land of the Lord, swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. There are only two choices. It is life or death. Life is found in obedience to God and his law. Death is found in rejection of God and his law. Now notice, it's a consequence that comes. But notice that those who reject, who hate God's wisdom, they love death, but then God also brings the, the judgment of death on them. So they go hand in hand. So rejection of the law of God is a result of previously already rejecting God himself. So no one rejects God's law or God's wisdom without first rejecting God himself. It is a rejection of the Creator and the revelation about Him in natural revelation. It is also connected to the rejection of the Redeemer and the light of His revelation when He came to earth. A couple scriptures to write down. Many of you are familiar with these verses, but you can write them down and study them later. Romans 1, 21-23. Notice the rejection of the Creator is leading to the rejection of the law of God. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Where does the rejection of God's law begin? It begins with rejecting the Creator Himself. We reject God, therefore we reject His law. But not only do we reject the Creator, but we reject the Redeemer. John chapter 3, 19 to 21. And this is the judgment. Notice it's judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Well, who is the light, by the way? Who's the light that came into the world? It's Jesus Christ. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why not? Lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If you love God, you love the Creator, you love the Redeemer, you run to the Creator, you, love to the, you run to the light, you don't want to hide in the darkness. And you hide in the darkness because you hate God, you hate His Word, you hate His law, you've rejected Him and you've rejected everything about Him. So a culture of death is a culture that is receiving what they love, they love death and they're receiving death because they've rejected God, the Creator. They've rejected God, the Redeemer, and they're getting what they have earned. And that points us to Leviticus. So we're in Deuteronomy, right before Deuteronomy of Numbers. We go back even farther to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. What is a culture of death? Leviticus 20, verses 1 through 5. 
By the way, if someone wants to get me a cup of water, um, I'd appreciate that because I have a feeling I'm going to need it. Like as soon as, you, as soon as it's not up here, right, all of a sudden you get thirsty. Someone was saying that last night at the chili dinner. If you have this big thing of water, you never drink out of it. But if someone gives you just a little cup, all of a sudden you're like, is that enough? I can't, and I'm so thirsty. Never mind. All right, Leviticus 20, <laughs> 1 through 5. It's because we have these little eight-ounce things of water, that's why. Never mind. Leviticus 20, let's start there. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people. Because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man who gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan, and I will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. A culture of death is a people, a nation, known for national sin and facing national judgment. It's a nation, it's a group, it's a people, a clan, or whatever it may be, depending on how big it is, known for their own sin and facing the national judgment. A culture is not just something out there. A culture is the people and their ways. It's a, it's a group of people. You can call that a nation, you can call that a clan, you can call that a tribe, you can call it different things. In the Bible, there were different groups. But it is a people known for something, and if it's a culture of death, they're known for sin, National sin, and they're facing also judgment as a people. That's what it says here in Leviticus chapter 20. If a man's personal sin is dealt with by the people of the land, then God's justice is satisfied against that man. And God is pleased. Because if there is justice that needs to be meted out, the people of the land are given authority to meet that, meet that out. But if the people of the land turn their eyes away from justice and close their eyes to that man's sin, what will God do? What does it say? He will then turn his face and bring judgment on the people. If you don't judge the sin in your own land, then you condemn yourself as a wicked nation, as a wicked clan, as a wicked tribe, and now you are wicked and God's judgment will come on you for not being just. How does that sound? So don't close your eyes to the sin of the people around you because God's wrath will come against a culture of death, against the people of the land and not just the man. It's not enough to say, I don't participate. God's judgment will fall on people who participate and people who don't participate because there's a type of participation that brings God's judgment on the nation, on the land, on the people. And that is closing your eyes to the wickedness of those around you and not bringing justice. We'll talk a lot more about this next week, but I want to bring this up here. Psalm 106, 36 to 41 is one of the key passages here. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Notice what happens when sin is allowed to continue. The land becomes polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against whom? His people, the whole nation, Israel, Judah, all of them, he abhorred his heritage. He gave them, just the sinners, just did everyone in the nation 
put their children on the hands of Molech? Did all of them sacrifice their children to Molech? No. Did the majority even probably sacrifice their children to Molech? Probably not even the majority. It was a minority. But what happened is because they allowed that to go on for hundreds of years in and out, God brings his wrath and brings his judgment against the people who will not bring justice. This is a culture of death. It becomes a nation of death because after injustice is allowed to go on for so many years, God then says, it's not just the individual that I'm angry with. Now I'm angry with the people who have all closed their eyes to the individual sin. We must be a nation of justice if we want God's blessing. It's a nation. It's a people. It's a land. If you want the blessing of God as a nation, if you want to be a nation that has life and lives in the land, you must do things God's way. And that's not just old covenant Israel. That's every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven since the beginning of time. That is the truth. Of course it's true for covenant Israel, but it's of course true for us as well. We don't have all the same promises, but every nation has a land. This nation of America, the United States of America, has not been promised this land. So not in the same way as Israel. But if you want the land that you have and want to stay in it, what must you do? You must please Almighty God. True for the Babylonians, true for the Assyrians, true for the Persians, true for the Greeks, true for the Romans. It's been true. And across the board, it's going to happen. If you want to have God's blessing, you must be a people of justice, God's justice. So the people here are known for particular sins. Their land is polluted, and God's anger is against even his covenant people, Israel. He gives the nation of Israel into the hand of the pagan nations. Now, of course, we've already seen not every person participated, but God's judgment is national. It's on the people of that land. Listen to how... God's judgment is described by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, 21. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. What happens in a culture of death? What happens when God's justice is set aside, when a people close their eyes to sin among them? What happens? We have death everywhere. It comes up into our windows. It enters our palaces. It cuts children off in the streets and young men from the squares. Why are there shootings in schools? Why do wicked, I call them wicked first, but also they're insane, but their wickedness comes first. Why do wicked, insane people take automatic or semi-automatic weapons and walk into an elementary school and shoot little children? Because death has come cutting off the children from the streets. In our land, death has come. It is because we are a culture of death and under the judgment of God that we are seeing such insane, wicked, wicked and insane actions by people doing terribly wicked things. Why? This is God's judgment. Do we see this as God's judgment or do we just see it as a mental health crisis? Of course it's a mental health crisis, but mental health crises come from sinful crises and come from the heart. We are a wicked people And we become insane in our wickedness. And we do terrible things in our wickedness. This is the judgment of God. We live in a culture of death. And when we see these things taking place, what do we think they mean? They mean God's judgment on a culture of death. Listen to George Mason, one of our founding fathers, one of the people instrumental in writing the Bill of Rights. He writes this. Every master of slaves is born a petty tyrant. What's he talking about? Is he talking about abortion? No. Is he talking about homosexuality or transgenderism? No. He's not talking about those things. He's talking about the sin of his day. What's the sin of his day? The national sin, slavery. We all like talking about slavery. Why? Because it's no longer a sin in our day. 
How can we like to preach against slavery when we don't have any slavery in our land, at least not the kind that is excused or in law, but we don't want to talk about the sin of our day. Evangelicals will preach all kinds of messages these days against the sin of slavery. And it ended when? 150 years ago. Do you see the point where we can preach against everything but the sin of our own day? Sorry, that just came to my mind. I'll get back to my point. What does he write? Every master of slaves is born a petty tyrant. They bring the judgment of heaven upon a country. As nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, they must be in this. By an, by an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. Now, he doesn't quote Scripture when he says that, but do you see the point that he's drawing from Scripture? If this nation perishes from the earth, will there be nations punished in eternity? No, individuals are punished in eternity. You will be punished in eternity for your sins. If one of your sins is closing your eyes to injustice and wickedness around you, you will, you know, you'll be punished for that. Now, if you're a Christian, what do we know? Christ took all of our punishment. Praise God. Christ took all of our punishment. But if you, as an unbeliever, die and you face the judgment of God, you will be faced with all of those punishments. But nations will not be judged or punished in eternity. Individuals will be. So where does God bring judgment on nations? Right here, right now, in this world. And so we have to understand how God operates. So when we look around and we see all of the violence. Now, some of you have lived even longer than I have. The, the, the nation we're living in is a far different nation in many ways. Just even in the last 20 years, even 10 years, the acceptance of violence, the acceptance of criminal violence, of, of, of robbery and, and looting and rioting and all kinds of, ter- of all these things, the lessening of punishments, the lack of the death penalty being removed in all these places, are we surprised? Do we recognize that we are that culture of death that's under God's judgment? But also, letter D, notice this. A culture of death is a culture that is serving Satan, the God of this world. This is not simply a physical battle. This is not simply a battle for the courts or for the laws of the nation. And this is not simply a battle for morality. It is all that, but it is much more. It is a religious war of Satan versus God. Any culture that has rejected God, His wisdom, and His law has chosen to follow and serve Satan. Are we clear? Is the Bible clear? You can only serve one master. And there are only two true masters out there. You can call your God or your gods by by all kinds of names, but those gods all represent Satan and his demons. If a people, a land and a nation, has chosen to reject God, by default they are choosing to serve Satan and to do his will. Notice who he is and what he does. John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil... And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. If we have a nation bent on murder, filled with murder, accepting a murder, promoting murder, what are we but a nation that is serving and following the father of murderers? He's a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In a culture of death, it's a culture that's fundamentally rejected the God of life and the abundance that comes with following the God of life. And therefore, they are following the thief, and the thief has only come to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. 
Satan is a destroyer. He just wants to destroy everything. And therefore, as people who worship Satan in our land, people who follow Satan, whether they recognize it or not, name him or not, they will then follow him in his ways and seek to do what? To everything. They will destroy everything. They think that is progress because they're following the wrong God. Satan is a destroyer who is at the bottom of every anti-God movement in existence. His entire purpose is to kill. His goal is death. And any culture that follows him will be a culture of death. Number two, what are the practices of a culture of death? So that was just my introduction. <laughs> just to get to the main, main point, but we have to lay out the foundation here of what a culture of death is and then what do we see in a culture of death. The practices of, command, uh, of rejecting the commands of God, the wisdom of God, go all the way back to the first command. And what is the first command given in Scripture? The first command is the dominion mandate, Genesis 1, 28. So give me point A, a culture that rejects the dominion mandate and its command to multiply and fill the earth with godly offspring. What are the practices of a culture of death? Because a culture of death rejects God, the creator, they reject his commands, and his first commandment is not repent and believe in Jesus Christ. His first commandment is the dominion mandate found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice what is God wanting. God is wanting, and not just wanting it, but commanding it, that we fill the earth with people. We fill the earth with people. That's the dominion mandate. We fill the earth with offspring, but not just any offspring. According to Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it's godly offspring. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? Who's the them? Adam and Eve one. With a portion of the Spirit in their union? Yes, he did. And what was the one God seeking from Adam and Eve? Godly offspring. So, Israelites, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God was judging the Israelites based upon the truth that what God was seeking from the beginning was godly offspring. And when you start divorcing the wife of your covenant and ruining the family, you are violating the biblical command in Genesis 1, the dominion mandate, to fill the earth with not just offspring, but God has always wanted from the beginning, godly offspring. That's the command. And a culture of death is one that rejects the dominion mandate. Not even necessarily the point of taking dominion, but the point of taking dominion by filling the earth with offspring, especially godly offspring. So, a culture of death is fundamentally a culture that is anti-children. A culture that is anti-children. What does God say a blessed nation looks like? What are the national blessings of obedience to the commands of God? So if you're still in Leviticus like I am, turn back to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. So in Deuteronomy 30, we saw the blessing, the life and death, laying before the life and death, the blessings and cursings, the result of following God's commands, or the opposite result. But God tells us what a blessed nation looks like, the national blessings of obedience to the commands of God. He, he does that starting in chapter 28. Uh, starting in verse 1, going through verse 6, that's where we'll stop. He says this, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. 
And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Sounds good? All in favor, say? Amen? You ever pray for that? You ever pray for God's blessing on your field, on your city? Your flocks and herds? Say, I don't have any flocks and herds. Get some. It's a lot of work, but get some. All right. Flocks and herds on your kneading bowl, on all these things. All of God's blessing. That's what it looks like. But what blessing sticks out to you? I want to draw your eyes to verse 4. What is the first specific blessing given? So you're blessed in the city, blessed in the field. Okay, what he's saying is you're blessed everywhere. Every place, every part is blessed. But what's the first specific blessing in those places? Blessed shall be the fruit of of your womb. We like the fruit of the ground, more food. We like the fruit of our cattle, more money, more, more riches, the increase of our herds and young of your flock. Wow, praise God. Our kneading bowl, our basket, everything is blessed. Everything is growing. But the first blessing is the fruit of the womb. Is that how our nation measures blessing? Rusty Thomas said, today many believe the fruitful womb is the curse and the barren womb is the blessing. What does that tell us about our nation? If the barren womb is the blessing, if the fruitful womb is the curse, we are anti-children, we are a culture of death, we are practicing the practices of a culture of death. Do you agree with that assessment of our culture, of our nation? Do you agree with his assessment? But what about us? Rusty Thomas preached a message, children, the least favorite blessing of the Christian. I thought about looking that up, see if I could find it on YouTube and then preaching that one, but I thought maybe it's a little too much. Children, the least favorite blessing of Christians. Is it true that the same reason the world and some in the church abort their children is the same reason why Christians refuse to procreate? Do we... In the church, faithful Christians, do we realize the fundamental rejection of God and His commands that make up the foundation of the sin of child sacrifice? Child sacrifice is based upon the fundamental rejection of God and His commands, but do we recognize that it goes to the idea of not being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth? Do we realize the ramifications of our own choices to limit the number of our own children, to use all kinds of birth control, to seek to plan our own families? Do we see our selfish, disobedient motivations? Do we see our own rejection of all the tremendous blessings that God intended for us? It's one thing to decry murder. It's one thing to uh, promote the sanctity of human life. It's one thing to give to Bella, Bella, Bella Women's Center. It's one thing to do those things. It's another thing to then open up your womb and open up your family to as many children as God will give you because you see children as a blessing and not a curse. There's a difference. There's a radical difference And I know the difference because I'm a result of that difference. What do you mean by that? I've lived it. I know what this is like. I was raised in a conservative, orthodox, faithful, Baptist, separated, holy (laughs) church with Christian parents who loved God. 
And I don't think I ever got what I'm going to tell you necessarily from anyone in particular, but this was the cultural air I was breathing in going to public school possibly, but raised in a faithful home and going to a Christian Bible college, that when we got married, what was Tracy on even before we got married in preparation to make sure that we could be wise? And that is birth control. We were on birth control since we were married. And for how long did we do birth control? A year, year and a half? And then, amazingly, Tracy seemed to have all of these physical problems. She ended up ending up with PCOS. You know what that is? Talk to some lady. Um, PCOS. And then we decided we wanted to have children now. And then guess what happened for another eight and a half years? We had one and a half and then eight and a half, right? Longer than that? Well, until 2010. <laughs> we were married in 99. So we could not have children. And that's when we found out all the PCOS and we found out all these issues. In fact, we were told that we probably wouldn't be able to have children. Now, how much of that is a result of the birth control that we chose willingly? Because we thought, well, we don't want to have children right away. We want to enjoy our marriage. We want to get to know each other. We don't want to trust God to plan our family. We don't want God to have control. And then we could not have children. Now, I was a pastor. No, I was just an associate pastor, so kind of a junior pastor. I, I just, you know, I'm in my 20s. We're just doing what seemingly, you guys tell me if I'm wrong, everybody was doing inside the church. Planning our families, taking birth control, making sure that we don't have too many kids because we won't want too much blessing. Amen? Making sure we don't, we, we can't handle that. We want to make sure we, we can afford everything and we can do everything and we can have the right... This is just the air we breathe. And so in any condemnation of anyone sitting here today, I want you to recognize I am condemning myself far more than you could ever be condemned. So the judgment begins where? In the house of the Lord. We've got to recognize God's judgment on us because of our wicked thinking. So we have chosen... We have chosen to not fulfill the dominion mandate. We've chosen to have smaller families and limit the number of kids so that if you're someone like the Lumsdens who has five kids, people look at you like you're crazy. Not out there, but where? In here. In the church. The people with a lot of kids are the weirdos. Why? How come it's the Roman Catholics that have all the big families? Well, there's reasons for that, and they're also not having big families anymore. There's, there's a lot to be said here. But I want you to recognize that this thinking, this mentality, is a fundamental characteristic of a culture of death that is anti-children, because being anti-children is being a culture of death. And some of us, because of all of the things that have happened, uh, we are no longer able to have children anymore, whether we wanted to have them or not. So now Tracy loves babies more than ever, and now we can't have any. Um, and, uh, you know, so I don't know what that means for our family, but the idea of what do we think about this? Some of us are past the age of childbearing, past the age of doing those things or, or all, all, all those things, and we can't change what we, we didn't know, but we can have a very different mentality and we can repent of the mentality we had and the choices we made so that we can encourage the younger people and the younger families in our church to make better, far better, more God-honoring decisions. But we only can do that by recognizing that we were wrong. And not just saying, well, that's just what everybody's, whatever it is, we must repent and ask God's forgiveness for that. And we have, as a couple, we have as individuals, we have done that. And God was merciful. We got you know, two handsome, intelligent, uh, obedient children sitting in the second row there as a result of God's mercy to us. 
It's like all pastor's kids, great kids, you know, praise God for that. <laughs> amen, thank you. I, I'd give at least one amen for that. God was merciful. And it, this, is a, this is a process for me to come to understand these things, but, but we must have a very different mentality. M- much of the church has bought the lie that children are expensive burden and a hindrance to our modern American lifestyles. And, and that's been us. Maybe you, but us corporately. Are you aware that the average American family in 1800 had seven children? I did some research. I'm not sure. The numbers are hard to, to, to find, but I did some research. The average American family in 1800 had seven children. I think that's one of the greatest demonstrations that we were founded as a Christian nation. And notice, are you aware that the average birth rate in America in 2020 is 1.64? From seven children, on average, on average, that's insane, on average, to think about that, to now 1.64 children per woman. Let me ask you this. Do you know what the replacement fertility rate is? 2.1. What happens in a nation that has a fertility rate under 2? It dies. It dies. It is a culture of death that will die. Go to Japan. Japan is a dying culture. It's a dying people. How many more decades without a massive turnaround before you will not see Japanese people? You think it's just Japan? So what is our culture of death doing? We are committing cultural national suicide. The only reason our nation continues to grow is because of legal and illegal immigration. It's the only way. Consider that the godless, God-hating communist nation of China, who enforced a one-child policy from 1980 to 2016, now has an average birth rate of 1.28. 1.28. You will hear it on national media. The Chinese nation is dying over a billion people, and they are dying. They're within 50 years of cultural death. And they are what kind of nation? Run by what kind of people who believe in what kind of God? They are a communist, God-hitting nation, and we are just a little behind them because we are the same kind of nation fundamentally in our hatred of God and God's ways and God's wisdom. We are anti-children just like the communist Chinese. And now they're trying to turn it around, which is why they ended that policy in 2016. And now they're trying to find all kinds of ways to encourage their people to have more and more babies. But you know what? They don't want to have them anymore because they have now turned their people into the same people they were, and now they can't turn it around. They are facing a demographic winner, and we should not be surprised, given their God-hating government, but we are like them. We are truly the same culture of death as the Chinese. A second aspect of a culture of death is a culture that rejects marriage and the family and seeks to destroy them. They reject them and seek to destroy them. I don't have a lot of scripture for this, and this is the, the biblical this is the sexual morality portion. It's a small portion, but I think it, we, we've hit the peak, and, I, and you, you know the scripture. I don't have to give too much scripture on this. If not, ask me afterward. I'll give you all kinds of verses. But we, as a nation, we've destroyed marriage and family with fornication before marriage. Fornication. We've destroyed marriage and family with adultery within marriage, with divorce instead of remaining married, with homosexuality instead of marriage altogether, And even sadder, even worse, just a complete rejection of marriage, period. Fornication, adultery, divorce, homosexuality, and just an ultimate 
ending of who cares about marriage. 30% of American adults living today have never been married. Does that surprise you? 30% of American adults have never been married. Not, married not, not unmarried now. Never been married. According to the Pew Research in 2021, 25% of 40-year-olds have never married. Consider that in 1980, that number was only 6%. Some of you remember the 80s. Some of you were alive in the 80s. Some of you are alive but don't remember the 80s. I don't know. The, the way the trend is going is by the end of this decade, or even by the end of the next couple of years, that number, 25% unmarried over 40, um, will, will end up being higher and higher and higher. We are just rejecting marriage altogether, hating marriage, rejecting marriage, and in all of our actions, destroying marriage. And when you destroy a marriage, what happens? You destroy the family, and therefore you destroy your culture, and you are, by definition, a culture of death. I want you to see that everything around us is pointing to the fact that we are dying, literally, physically, because we're dying spiritually. We are a culture of death. What does that look like? So I want you to see it in everything you hear in the news, every factor, all these things that become reported, all these things that come out, we are a culture of death. As a culture of death, we've destroyed our own fertility through pornography and self-gratification beginning in elementary school. Now, you say, I don't send my kids to elementary school, elementary ages. I'll make it easier for you. You give them access to the internet, you give them unfettered access to the internet, you give them a cell phone, you let them stick it in their pocket, they will be on pornography in under a week. Probably male and female, mostly male. Do not do it. Do not do it. Stop it. Take it away. Take it away now. Why? Because through pornography and self-gratification, we destroy fertility. And that leads to the current acceptance of absolute infertility through the mutilation of sexual organs now in middle and high school and in the early adult years. Absolute infertility, cutting off body parts, never be able to give, have kids again, no matter what. There's no way. This is a culture of death. And we're doing that because we hate children and we hate marriage and we hate the family because we hate God. And we hate His laws, we hate His commands, we hate His wisdom. But notice this, personal, selfish, self-centered, sexual gratification is fundamental to the culture of death. We talk about biblical sexuality, biblical morality, because this is a fundamental characteristic. And we as the church have bought into a lot of it. We're just not as far along. So in rejecting the creator and the lawgiver, the way he made the world and the way we can truly enjoy the world, we must give ourselves to every sexual sin, starting with lust in the heart and working its way out in every sexual perversion. And we as the church are not exempt. And this is where we as a church say we haven't gone so far. But because we have made pornography something that cannot be beaten or defeated or stayed away from as Christian men and now Christian women, because we filled our minds with this, this misery, this junk, this wickedness, and you can turn to Matthew 5, 27, uh, 5, 27 through 30 to see what the Bible says about this. We've made lust recognizable, we've made lust normal, and we wonder why we have a culture of death. It doesn't just start with these other outward sins, it starts with sin in the heart. And we cannot accept sin in the heart, which is why we must pursue with everything we have internal heart holiness in our desires, in our eyes, in our ears, and what we look at and what we focus on. What you find is you find progressives or even conservatives who want to just turn the clock back five years, ten years, and stop the movement. 
No, we cannot be mutilating children. That's too far. And as a church, we say, no, we can't allow homosexual marriage. That's too far. No, as a church, we must say, we cannot allow lust in the heart. That's too far. No pornography ever, nothing allowed. We must be holy all the way through. That's our only hope. We must be radically different. And when we're not radically different, when we raise our kids in a certain way, in a certain culture, we end up leading to the same end of family, the same anti-children mentality, where there's lack of fertility, there's lack of ability to have kids, and now we don't even want kids, and now we don't even want marriage, and that's in the church. We have to be radically different. In a culture of death, how can we have a culture of life? It goes to the depths of this. So, what's the only hope? What is the only hope for a culture of death? Now, I've got some good news. Man, this is, I tell you what, it's no fun. It's no fun to, to say these things. This is terrible. And maybe you feel like, man, you're just beating on us. Okay, let me give you some hope. we got like 15, 30 minutes of hope. All right, sounds good. What is the only hope for a culture of death? The only hope for a culture of death is the offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ. When Adam and Eve fell, God gives a promise of hope in Genesis 3.15. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. See, offspring of Satan, offspring of the woman. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is that offspring that would bruise, that would crush the head of Satan? Who's that offspring? Jesus Christ. But notice, he's the offspring of a woman. How do we get from the garden to Bethlehem? We have faithful Men and faithful women who following the promise of God and the dominion mandate, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what is going on in the world, continue to have child after child after child in hope that one day the offspring of the woman will crush the, uh, will crush the serpent's head. If at any time we have an anti-children, anti-God culture that says, you know what, we've had enough kids, we filled the planet with enough children, we're destroying the planet, we have to have less people because we're ruining all these things then we stop having kids, then we end the line leading to the Messiah. Now it's already too late for that. But if that had ever happened, we would understand it's the offspring of a woman, a child. In that spiritual war between Satan and God, ultimate victory is found only in Jesus Christ. He is the promised offspring of the woman who would defeat Satan once for all on the cross. It was faithful, obedient women and men who had godly offspring in faith, believing that one day the victory would come through one of those children. Nobody knew who she was. Nobody knew her name. Nobody knew where she was going to come from other than the line of Judah, other than the line of David. These lines are given. We'll see another one of these promises. But nobody knew. And they keep having child after child after child in faithful obedience to God, trusting that one day this promise would come true. And it did. And so the hope for the godless, the hope for the wicked, the hope for the sexual sinner, the hope for all sinners is found in the offspring of a woman, Jesus Christ. Hope is also found in the son of Abraham. He's also Jesus Christ, same guy. Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How could all the families of the earth be blessed in Abram? Because victory comes to the offspring of Abram. And it wouldn't be victory for ethnic Israel only, but for all the families through the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ came to save both Jews and Gentiles. Praise the Lord. All of us Gentiles say, amen. We're all sons of Abraham. 
Father Abraham, never mind. <clears throat> Many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and I hope you are too. And that comes through a son, an offspring, and you know how much trouble Abram had. I hope you know the story. And the fact that God said, your only son, the son of promise, the son of you love, by the way, take him up the mountain and sacrifice him on the altar. And in faith, he did it. Because he recognized that the, the offspring that crushed the serpent would be the offspring that would save the world. And if God says to kill that offspring, what must God be able to do? Raise him from the dead because God is going to fulfill his promises. So even from our barren wombs, even from our anti-child mentality, even from that God can raise up as if resurrected from the church, a nation, a people, to do what God has called us to do. It is not too late to have hope despite our sin. Do we believe in a God of resurrection, a God of power who can take wicked sinners and turn them into obedient saints who will faithfully do all they can with what time is left and what resources are left to do what God has called them to do? It's not too late to be obedient, even if it's too late to have children. But we trust God to do these things. He came to save. Jesus Christ is the only Savior for Jew and Gentiles. There's only one Savior, that is Jesus Christ. The only hope for a culture of death, let us see, is the Son of God. Same guy, Jesus Christ. The Son of God, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, His only Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Redemption. Redemption from the broken penalty, the, the penalty of breaking the law of God, would come through a son. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God in human flesh, and He was born of a... Woman, just as Genesis 3 said, to redeem those under the penalty and condemnation of the law. The only redeemer, the only savior for your sins, your sins of being anti-children, your sin of abortion, your sin of murder, your sin of lust, your sin of homosexuality, whatever your sin is or all your sins are, the only savior is Jesus Christ. You cannot save yourself. You cannot undo what you did. You cannot make it right by doing good things in the future. You have broken the law of God. You're under his condemnation. But God sent his son born of a woman, to save those, to redeem those who were under the penalty and condemnation of that law. The only hope for sinners is Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Have you trusted in him? Are you born again? Are you his adopted son or daughter? I trust you are. But notice also, the only hope for the culture of death is Jesus Christ. The only hope for our culture is Jesus Christ. We as a nation, we as a people, we must repent and believe. It's our only hope. There is no hope. There is no rescue. There is no redemption out of this terrible pit that we are in, this culture of death that we are, apart from Jesus Christ. But that's not the only thing. Letter D. What is our only hope? Now, Jesus Christ is the ultimate hope. He's the fundamental hope. He's, he's, he's where all hope begins. But that's not where all hope ends. The other hope is the godly offspring of faithful Christians who see children as a heritage, reward, and arrows in the war for our culture, in the war for our nation, in the war for our land, in the war for our people. We get this from Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. We'll come back to this slide after we read this verse so everybody can fill in all the blanks. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Do you want a heritage? you want a godly heritage? Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. I just, I just want to let that sit. Now, barrenness 
is God's choice. Barrenness can also be a consequence for sinful behavior in the past. What I'm not saying, I want to be heard clearly here, is that if you struggle to have children, it's because you've done something wrong and God has taken away his reward. No, it might be God has chosen barrenness. Many of God's most faithful women in the scripture struggle with barrenness, and God miraculously answered. But notice when he does answer, how do we receive those children? Whether we have one because only God gives us one or he gives us 21. We'll stop there. I won't go any further. We see children, every child, as a reward. We welcome every child as a reward, no matter the, where the child came from, no matter how the child was conceived, no matter the child's background. It doesn't matter. Children are a reward, and we need to fight for the life of children. We'll talk way more about this next week because we see children as a reward, and they are. But notice it doesn't stop there. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Notice it's the children of one's youth. We are in a war, so when do we need to start having children? Okay, I, I know my kids are young, but why do I tell you that prepare your kids to be married at 18? It's because you want them to start having kids when they're 18. Now, married, married, married to a man, married to a woman, one man, one woman in marriage, having children faithfully as early as possible in one sense. Notice, as early as faithfully possible. Parents, talk to your kids, help them understand what I'm saying. Because in this religious war, you need some arrows and you need them quick. And the earlier you start, the more energy you have, the more ability you have to raise them earlier and get the grandchildren earlier and all those other things, and, and, and you want as many arrows in the quiver as possible. If we understand the situation, we will understand that the way out of the culture of death for our nation, for our people, for our land, is faithful Christian people having kids. So blessed is the man who, who fills his quiver with them. Fill your quiver. He should not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. Why? Because he's got a whole posse with him. He goes to the gates and speaks with his, with, his, with his enemy, and he doesn't go alone because he's not a married man with no kids. He's not a dink. He's not a double-income, no-kid family. That's not my name for them. That's what they call themselves. He is a person who's had multiple children. He's raised them up. Just think of David's family, seven sons. Going into war. I mean, I show up, I got something to say, and I got all my boys with me. The more boys you have taking Taekwondo, uh, learning how to shoot a weapon, learning how to do these things, the better off you are when it comes to fighting. So here we are. The godly offspring of faithful Christians who see children as the heritage reward and arrows in the war for our culture. And whether it's a hot war or a cold war or only a spiritual war, it is always a spiritual war, but if it doesn't turn into anything else, it's still a spiritual war. And we have to raise godly children in a culture of death, how many generations will it take for the faithful culture of life for the church to recapture a land, a people, a nation? If we just had on average, let's say, five kids, and everyone else is having 1.6 to 1.2 to zero. Someone said, I forget who it was, it's been said a lot, homosexuals do not have any children, but all they want to do is take yours indoctrinate them into the same mentality and destroy the culture. But we are the ones having children. We need to have more children in faithfulness to God, and we need to raise those children as a reward, as a blessing, as arrows for the war for our culture, which means the kind of education we do and how much education, all these things, are, these things matter. The church, the faithful Christians must rebuild the foundation. We must go back to the beginning, back to Genesis 1, and understand how much of the culture of death has been mixed into our foundation. 
We must understand how much of the cultural rot has infected us, our thinking, our desires, our actions. We must begin to rebuild the foundations at the most fundamental level. The level of the individual Christian, the level of the Christian family, the level of the Christian church, and we have to be faithful at the most individual level, the smallest level first. We must understand how these things work. And we who are beyond childbearing age, we who are, are empty nesters and all we have is kids and grandkids out there, all of us, we must dedicate ourselves to being a part of a church where we can support the families that are larger, where it's more difficult with people who need jobs. We have to understand that there's far more to this and we have a part to play and we don't just get to say, hey, we're out of that and we get to go do our own thing. Now, by the way, when I say any things like this, I am not saying that you, as a Christian, you can't go on vacation. Though Isaac prayed against vacations, and hopefully you heard that, all right? You can talk to him later about that. How many vacations? What kind of vacations? How much money do I spend on myself? When do I retire? How much money do I spend on myself? How many cars? How many trucks? How many homes? You have to answer that faithfully with God. But I'm saying to you, are we going to give ourselves, understand the nature of a spiritual war within this land, the war for our families, the war for our souls, the war for this land, and understand that we must sacrifice to do that? And let me tell you, I hate sacrifice. That was why I was anti-children. That's why I didn't want to have too many kids. You ever heard anybody say that? I don't want too many kids. Like, what is too many kids? I said that. I'm sure I said that. I didn't really want kids. I didn't really care about kids. That's why God gives you a wife, because most women come out naturally really wanting kids, and that's good. That's why God made it. I'm like, I, can, I don't need to be a dad. Then I was a dad. I'm like, this is pretty, pretty good most of the time. I enjoy it. And I enjoy it more when I'm not selfish and self-centered and living for myself. And so the idea of us being faithful to these things is a radically different lifestyle because it's going to take sacrifice. It will cost you something the more kids you have. It will lessen your time in retirement. It will lessen how much you can spend on yourself. Of course all those things are true, but they are a reward. And if we see them as a reward and we raise them as a reward, we raise them as arrows in the war, then we will be blessed beyond measure. We will be blessed. And what I see... So I see God's judgment on the church, and I believe every family here is touched by God's judgment. Every family who has adult kids. We're touched by God's judgment because God has put his judgment on our culture of death and had our kids walk away from the Lord, walk away from the church, walk away from the truth. And they are rejecting it, numbers never before seen in this nation. And that is God's judgment, not just on you and your family, but on this church, our church, and on this nation. And that's why on Sunday nights we gather together to pray for the salvation of the souls of our families because we recognize that we want our kids, our grandkids to repent. We want our kids to be faithful. We want to raise them differently, but that's not going to be all that, we, that's not going to be all that it takes. Of course we made mistakes. No parent is perfect. We don't want to excuse it. We want to repent and ask God's forgiveness but recognize that there is a generational judgment on those people under their 40s, maybe even a little bit higher, as we see kids walking away. And it doesn't mean we don't have a job to do as a church. We have more to do. We must understand the cost. Or we must be willing to sacrifice. It's going to be a different kind of life. It's not the American dream that most of us were raised to try to achieve. And I understand it. I was raised with that mentality, not intentionally. Uh, but I, I adopted it and took it in as cultural air that we breathe and have gone after it. And it cost us. It cost us. It's going to have to be something different. Are we going to be those people? Are you going to be that Christian? Are you going to repent? Are you going to confess? Are you going to cry out to God? Are you going to ask him to show you what you can do now, where you are now with what you have now and the time you have left to do what you can do? In a culture of death, a people of life will shine as a city on a hill 
They will be salt and light. And when people notice, when we hit the bottom, we have not yet hit bottom, where will they turn? Father, there's so much more to be said, but my words will not cause anything to happen just by repeating them, Lord. So we stop and we wait. We'll let you work. Forgive us. Forgive me. Lord, you are a merciful God who forgives those who repent, who cleanses us from all sin, who will use us even as broken, wounded, hurting saints with a past to serve you faithfully in the future. Lord, may we be a holy people. May we be holy priests, separated unto good works, to be the kind of people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.